Welcome to the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast, where we celebrate the craft of poetry. Each week, we feature interviews with incredible poets and artists, including Olivia Gatwood and A.E. Stallings, and original poetry read by the authors. I'm your host, James Moorhead, poet laureate of Dublin, California, and author of Canvas and Portraits of Red and Gray. Eric Stifel lives in Athens, Ohio, with his dog, Violet. He is a PhD candidate at Ohio University, where he teaches poetry and composition. He received the Sequestrum New Writer Award for Poetry in 2018, and his work has been nominated for a Pushcart Prize, the Penn Review Prize, and others. He earned his MFA from Washington University in St. Louis and his undergraduate degree from NYU. His first collection, Hello Nothingness, which we're going to discuss, was published by Main Street Rag in 2022, and his work has been published in journals across the globe. Eric, welcome to the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Well, we're excited to have you here to discuss your, your new book. So to start, how did you first discover poetry, and how do you try to share your love of poetry with your students? Um, well, the first part of that, um, I, I got the idea in my head maybe when I was, I don't even know, maybe 10 or 11, that I was going to be this writer and I was going to write novels and... You know, that, that was going to be my main kind of focus in life. And I grew up in South Carolina where there is a public residential school for um, young artists. So a public boarding school for young artists called South Carolina Governor's School for the Arts and Humanities. And I did a summer program there um, before going to the, the boarding school for my last few years of high school. And I kind of thought to myself, well, you know, we have to do poetry. There's a poetry component. I'll just kind of get through it and then I can work on my novel. And I went to that summer camp and I remember the three poets I attribute this to are Larry Levis, uh, Louise Glick, and Lee Young Lee. Mm. I remember reading those three and being so struck by the variety of voice and the breadth of emotion that their work was able to cover. And I, I was so struck that, um, you know, I, I've kind of, I've been pursuing poetry ever since. I, I've never even started on a novel. <laughs> I've been wholly dedicated to poetry for the past probably 15 years or so. And so the, that breadth of possibility that exists in poetry is something that I try to share with my students. Um, I had a professor who once told me that you, know, you can't teach your students how to be great poets, but you can foster a love of poetry in them. And that love of poetry is essential toward becoming a poet. And so I, I try to show my students poems that will bewilder them or challenge notions of what poetry can be and maybe expand the barriers of what they think they can do with their work. I love that that quote that you shared and this that first critical step is a love of poetry and for me it was a 10th grade teacher who <clears throat> excuse me introduced us to E Cummings and which totally blew my mind and changed my whole framing of poetry and and then Philip Levine who um on my own I think was the name of the poem if I remember correctly that it it's just a beautiful poem that I read over and over again trying to understand it in just a way that you you don't really read prose for the most part over and over and over in the same way 
Right. It's funny that you say that because I think my the kind of archetype in my mind for the what I'm looking for in poetry is a is a poem that is that is at once intriguing and puzzling in a way that makes me want to return to it. For me, that's Archaic Torso of Apollo by Rainer Maria Rilke. That's a poem I, you know, I've gone from not understanding in the slightest, but still loving to, um, you know, I'm actually at a point now where I, I show it to my composition students and do a little exercise and where I show them that actually, yes, they can understand poetry um, if they, they come back to it. So congratulations on publishing your first collection, Hello Nothingness. At what point did you know you had the critical mass required for a, a full collection to create a book? Um, so this is also a funny story, and thank you for your congratulations. Um, when I was getting my master's degree, I became friends with a fellow poet. Her name's Emily Patino, so I, I talk about her in the notes of my book. Um, and she was a friend of mine who had collected this kind of manuscript, and I think she just wanted to do a swap. Um, I think she just wanted me to have some poems that I could show to her and kind of convinced me to throw everything together into this 50-page bundle. And it, you know, it wasn't until I was kind of nudged in that direction that I realized, hey, you know, maybe I have something that's worth collecting, and maybe, uh, maybe there is some coherency going on um, within these poems. It was probably a five-year process after that initial compilation um, for the book to reach the state that it's in now. Um, but it was it was just seeing them all together and feeling like there was something coherent that was kind of a driving force. Right. So you employ prose poetry in several of the poems. Smoke from the demolished power plant forms a humanoid figure. Terrific title, by the way. Where you write is one example, and you write there. The price of discontent was an obsession with the curve of an eggshell, an arithmetic attraction to a certain kind of light, and a crown of herons yelling grief is a machine. I love how you hide poetry in the form of prose here and elsewhere. I first experimented with prose poetry in my most recent book, Portraits of Red and Gray, and found it a valuable poetic tool. How do you approach and how do you recommend approaching the writing of prose poetry? I think that with any poem, it's essential to at least consider the form of the poem and how the form of the poem affects the function of the individual poem. And so for me, a, a prose poem is, it's really just another form in my arsenal where I can add some sense of, well, coherency or um, some kind of standardization of the text where the poem itself might go somewhere a little bit more wild or do something a little bit more interesting in terms of language or punctuation or um, even meter and sound and rhythm. And so I'm very interested in the prose poem as an opportunity to allow for the possibility of freedom in a form, like a prose form, which we think might be more mundane at times. I think uh, I was, I never really knew 
how to approach prose poetry. And in my most recent book, I had a couple of poems where I could not get it to work. And then I thought, well, maybe this is my chance to do a prose poem. And yeah, it's a tool in the toolkit that I think is very valuable to have. So the title of your collection, Hello Nothingness, is taken from a line in the poem, The Next Painting Was Full of Dark Clouds. Talk about the process you went through in finding a title that captured the essence of your collection. I spent, I've, I have spent untold hours um, languishing over the title of the collection. I think, you know, I'll, I'm certainly not alone in, in feeling the difficulty of finding the right title. And I, I, I really, the, the process was mainly me kind of obsessively searching for what felt like the right fit for years actually years um, it had multiple different titles um actually one of the working titles was opalescent signaling the end which is the last line of the other poem you referenced um smoke from the demolished powerpoint forms a humanoid figure and no matter how much i obsessed it you know it seemed like nothing really felt right and so i, I decided to to put the, you know, the task of titling the manuscript or finding the perfect title aside for a little while. And reading through the manuscript one day, I, I came across those lines. Um, it, it's a moment, it's maybe one of my favorite moments in the book where I get to, you know, both make this kind of nihilistic gesture of welcoming nothingness into the poem, but I also get to maintain a level of playfulness that I think is also important to my work. So when I started to think about that title, it, you know, when I finally stumbled upon it, I, you know, it felt kind of perfect in that there's a darkness to it, but there's also a kind of unmistakable playfulness. And I felt that was emblematic in my work. No, it's a great example of how poets anguish over individual words. It's just two words. That's all it is. But it's so important. Uh, it's the first thing that anyone's going to read uh, in your book. And so I think that that's another thing I love about poetry is the you're just forced to have incredible attention to detail in a way that, you know, there's you you can read a really good book and still find sections where, you know, the author didn't need to be as precise as a poet would need to be where every word, every syllable counts. Right. That distillation of language is, is certainly powerful and it, it leads to interesting places for sure. Yeah. Well, your poems in this collection have a dreamlike surreal quality in many cases. One example in the eyes and amphitheater has this passage. A man drinking Campari and soda sneers from the balustrade of conscious thought, some echo rippling in a bathtub, the human figure growing colder, holding its breath, half-dressed. Where do you find inspiration for these wonderfully unusual images? Well, I think, you know, my process... A lot of most of the time, I find inspiration for my poetry um, in other pieces of art, and I'm sure that's not particularly uncommon. But it could be anything from a movie. I think that poem I was thinking a lot about the film Annihilation, mm. which doesn't really 
there there isn't really too much resonance, overt resonance between the two, but there's a sense of unease and discomfort that I wanted to try to portray in unease and discomfort. That's maybe difficult to define. And so I wanted to find, I wanted to find images that would be both perhaps a little bit bewildering, but also images that were clear in their kind of emotional significance. So that, that image of, of someone drowning or holding their breath in a bathtub while they're still half clothed, you know, there's, there's almost this feeling of being weighted down or um, being compressed in some way by those wet clothes that felt very mm -hmm. poignant to me. And in some way, I think there's a relation to the idea of, you know, a snooty man drinking a cocktail sneering at you. <laughs> You know, I just thought the juxtaposition of imagery that you use, the unusualness, and then, you know, you brine this connection to annihilation that's, uh, that may not be obvious on the surface is, uh, I love that. Yeah, I think that there, as you walk through the world as a poet, almost to potentially an annoying degree to friends and family, you're seeing, the th hearing the things they're saying, seeing the things they're doing, seeing the images around you and, and thinking, oh, there could be a poem in there and almost mm -hmm. getting distracted for a moment. Yeah. So after reading All Night... I sought the beautiful poem that in part inspired your poem by Alejandra Pizarnik. You've also employed ekphrasis for several poems in this collection, including Encountering Judith and the Holofernes. How do you approach writing poetry inspired by other poets and by works of art, building on what you just shared, so that the resulting piece is something novel and reflects your voice? So... I've written a lot of ekphrastic poems across my career as a poet. Um, you know, many more even that, that made it into this book. And one of the things that I realized and, and um, someone might have pointed out to me at some point is that it, you know, it tends to be more interesting when, at least from my work, when ekphrastic poems are talking about my experience with a piece of art mm -hmm. rather than merely describing, you know, the way a shadow hits um, Isaac's face and the sacrifice of Isaac, you know, that, that kind of technical detail or even the trying to, trying to reproduce the experience of viewing this piece of art, you know, it's kind of futile, you know, it, it would be, it would, make more sense to just kind of look at the piece of art itself. But what I can talk about is my experience of interacting with that piece of art and what it made me think of and where it made me feed or where, where it kind of led me. That poem, Encountering Judith and Holofernes, for example, it, you know, I think it's a lot about the mental state that I felt after I, I had the privilege of seeing that painting in person. It was, you know, what it was like, um, feeling it afterward. So I think, I think a lot of times these ekphrastic poems are, are attempts of expressing, expressing that experience. You have a, I mentioned this before, you have a skill in crafting the titles of your poems. It reminds me of advice I received from a, a poet colleague. Uh, she told me that poetry titles need to also serve the purpose as headlines that pull in the reader. Uh, particularly as a lot of poems are, are first read online. Uh, 
A good example is your poem, I've Gone Missing and Wondered What the Implications Were. The title is so intriguing. And what is your approach to crafting? You've talked about crafting the title for your book and how painful that was. What's your process for crafting the titles of your poems? Fortunately, that's a process that has become easier over time. Maybe 10 years ago, I would have struggled. Well, no, certainly 10 years ago, I struggled a lot more. But now as I write poetry, um, there are times when I'll start with a title. Um, or maybe I'll have a title in my mind that evokes a feeling or a mental state that I'd like to explore. You know, as an example, um, I, I just I have the title "The World Without Magic" stuck in my mind, and I haven't written the poem yet. But I'm, you know, I'm kind of looking forward to the day when I figure out how to write that poem. But then other times, you know, the language comes first or the idea comes first, and I'm stuck with the painful process of trying to discover the right title for a poem. You know, I can't just write ode to melancholy or something like that you know our, our tastes have changed um or maybe i could and and you know that's something that would be worth trying but i think with titles i try to capture a sense of what the poem wants to do or what the poem wants to express in a way that will intrigue a reader to to move forward into the poem so you know that poem i'd gone missing and wondered what the implications were. You know, it doesn't doesn't really give away the content of the poem, but it does motion toward this kind of lost sense of self or lost sense of identity. And that's something I think people are interested in. Yeah, no, I think he, that, that creating intrigue is really important. And if your title is too banal, uh, then if the, if the title's banal, then it sets the tone for the poem. You have to be careful about that. Uh, so yeah, I spent, uh, I've rewritten a lot of titles based on the advice that was shared from a, a poet. One example was I had a poem called uh, Stage Fright, which was functionally accurate to the poem. It was about an eighth grade experience of stage fright. But then I rewrote it as the time, that time I was left for dead downstage. Just totally different. It's, it, it's, it's just a totally different way of entering it. And that got, poem got placed. And I'm convinced it's partially because of the title change uh, made a, the difference. It's a, it's a great title. It's very evocative. I love it. Uh, so the poem Birdwatching Melancholia reminded me of Safia Elhilo's extraordinary contrapuntal poems. Uh, I interviewed her last year on the podcast, which, and we discussed contrapuntal poems in, in, our, in that interview. It's such a complex form of poetry to create. Did you start this poem with the form in mind or a variation of that form in mind? Was this poem actually two independent poems, a la Beatles' Day in the Life, that works better together? Uh, or did the form emerge during the revision and editing process? I was thinking explicitly about the contrapuntal form when I wrote that poem. I had just recently read Haruki Murakami's Kafka on the Shore, which is a novel that is told in almost a contrapuntal form where, um, sorry if anyone's upset by the spoilers in this, but, but the, <laughs> each of the odd numbers all follow one character while the even characters follow a, excuse me, the even chapters follow a completely different character. And the two never actually meet or interact, but there's this compelling, engaging narrative that evolves. Um, and 
the idea of someone doing that in a novel was so stunning and so striking to me that I wanted to try doing it in a poem. And I wanted to try with that poem, most of the left-hand text, the text in the left-hand column is, you know, it's kind of concerned with the physical, the everyday, the, you know, kind of experiences of the speaker while the right-hand column is this kind of insidious uh, metaphysical or existential gloom that's that's kind of lurking on the outskirts of the poem. And so part of part of what I was thinking about was a you know a poem where readers get access in separate doses to both a speaker's physical actions and their internal state. So I wanted to use the form that way. Yeah, I think it's just a terrific example of where poetry is uh, it's just such a unique and and varied form and and can give such incredible language challenges to the writer that are really painful at times, but so satisfying when you unravel them. So uh, what have you learned about revising and editing poetry that you pass along to your students from your own personal experience? Let's see. I think the most important thing I try to impart to my students is the, you know, the kind of, I want to empower them to revise boldly. I don't want them to become beholden to, you know, a, a particular poem in a certain form. And when I, when I teach, I try to teach from a place of understanding my students' intentions with their poems and then helping them realize those intentions rather than telling them merely, this is working, this is not working, this line is great. That intention for my students is important. And oftentimes teaching is a process of showing my students how their intentions can be better met. And so my goal is to help them identify moments in their poems that aren't meeting their goals, mm -hmm. and then to give them the, uh, the confidence to make revisions that will help realize those goals. Uh, intentionality, boy, is that a word that encapsulates so much about poetry, the intentionality around word choice, around what your what the focus is, how you guide and don't guide the reader, how you recite your poetry. That's, yeah, if there were one word you almost want to put up in a, in a classroom around poetry is intentionality. Um, that's a terrific way to articulate it. Uh, so before passing the mic over to you to read some of your poetry, what is the most exciting thing about poetry being created today? And I, I ask that given that, you know, poetry has gone through many uh, revivals and phases over, over the centuries. There's points in time where poets could fill you know, um, concert halls and be sold out. Um, you know, the Amanda Gorman, I was just listening to her masterclass, uh, fantastic, and how she just ignited this excitement around poetry uh, with through one poem and in a particularly visible way. Um, and then there's, then there's thousands of poets that are quietly toiling away and not sharing their poetry with anyone except themselves or their family. Um, so what are the things that excite you about poetry today? And what are the things that you uh, almost wish poetry could be achieving today? 
Well, I think that the internet is an exciting tool for poetry. Um, you know, if, if I imagine back to 50 years ago, you know, there, there were far more obstacles between not only publishing poetry, uh, but there, there are also obstacles with finding and reading poetry. You know, mm -hmm. before the internet, we would have been limited to, you know, journals with wide circulation or even the journals, or the books that were available in, in your local bookstore. But now with the, the proliferation of the internet and, and kind of digital publishing, um, you know, there we have access to journals across the globe. And then on top of that, I am excited by the possibilities of experimental poetry and digital poetry, um, even just um, reviewing books and, and finding books that I review. I, you know, I, it seems like so many contemporary poets are exploring new possibilities in their work. Um, and so it, it's, it's exciting every time I stumble across a book that makes me think, wow, I, I didn't know that poems like this could exist. I, you know, I might read a book like Kristen Bach's Glass Bikini and think, you know, I, I didn't expect there to be a 20-part love story in outer space near the end, but it works and it fits with the context of the book and it, it expands the realm of, of possibility in poetry to me. And so... In some ways, it it can be deflating, or it can it can feel like it's hard to be noticed in a world where um, there are so many different venues, and yet so many of them are still um, difficult to to publish one's work in. But at the same time, I'm excited by um, again just the breadth of experimentation and creativity in, in contemporary poetry. I mean, I also love that uh, that you can go onto YouTube and, and TikTok and Instagram Reels and all these different vehicles and and hear poets reciting their poetry in their own voice, which you know a century ago mm -hmm. or even a couple decades ago or a decade ago would have been very very difficult. You have to see them in person, which is ultimately the best thing, but not possible uh, for most people. So I, I think that's another huge benefit. You can learn so much from from watching poets recite their poetry effectively. Definitely, I agree. I hadn't thought about about those mediums, but that makes sense. Well, now I'm going to pass the mic over to you to read uh, several of your poems. Okay, so this is a poem called By the Flight of a Bee Around a Pomegranate, which takes its title partly from a Salvador Dali painting. And it also references two paintings, Girl Looking Out the Window by Edvard Munch and The Birch Forest by Gustav Klimt. By the flight of a bee around a pomegranate. When I was younger, I believed that possibility could be limitless, as the flight of a bee might cut into a cursive that one might figure into the tender triangles of the whirl of Adalia, or the starts of sentences so breathtaking one thought they could only be found in books. Reality could be any number of things. As a tiger leaping over one's sleeping body as it springs from the maw of an over-large goldfish through an uptight ultramarine air, itself flowing forth from a crumbling of pomegranate seeds, 
My, what little sense you make, says the man with a leather briefcase to the young Eric sitting quietly on a bench. But where could that bench be? Who would watch from the ledge of catastrophe or spend all afternoon arguing against ekphrasis as a silly term for pathetic fallacy? What would the girl looking out the window think? And what would the birch forest say if it knew its maker would keep drawing more than two? This next poem is called Volta. And I wrote it as a response to Wallace Stevens's The Snowman, but I don't think there are any really explicit connections. Volta. There comes a time when the voice you considered comfort lets go of your wrist with nothing more than a bruise on the skin to remind of what was lost as any number of miseries might masquerade as props in the story of your life. You close one window of possibility as the sound of the wind and the sound of wandering leaves calls out to you. But if your body were a mask, you could leave behind as it suits you. Would you even know to hear that call, to close your eyes to lurking threat and venture forward, to search for solace amongst the ferns and the reeds? Or would you sink back into the body tracing the scars on your skin as a star map leading inward, never to return. And then this last poem is called Sisigi. I was of over a dozen minds as veins of copper leaf map, the ever-winding path of the blackbird. I had lived for too long in someone else's story traced my hands over the coarse road of another's verdigree. When I found the rhythms of the blackbird, I couldn't look back. At the moment of precise alignment, what I found I couldn't say, inside the ghost of a memory, with past and present in retrograde as ash covers surrounding landscapes in hopes of mimicking fresh snow. Inside the black star, there was void, and there was void, and inside that void could be light. Wonderful. This is always one of my most uh, enjoyable parts of doing these interviews is to hear the, uh, the poetry and the poet's voice. Uh, so uh, in By the Flight of a Bee Around a Pomegranate, you end with questions, which I, again is, I think, a wonderful poetic device that you would – it would be pretty frustrating in a novel if you were if you were reading a whodunit and then the book ended with questions that don't answer it and you're left sort of hanging. Uh, but with poetry, that's a very powerful device. So how do you think about incorporating questions as a tool into poetry? That's a good that's a good question, as it were. I think a lot a lot of the times questions work as kind of rhetorical questions in that they they serve to direct the reader to uh, you know ask that question themselves or or to put that kind of question in their mind. And I think with by the flight of a bee around a pomegranate, the poem is really arguing for 
a fantastic imagination and the, you know, the ability to allow oneself to kind of chase that imagination. And so in, in this poem, I, you know, I kind of juxtapose the two figures with the, there's the man with the briefcase saying, my, what little sense you make. And then on the other end, there's the speaker who's, who's asking these questions. And so in this poem, I, you know, I think the questions are emblematic of chasing that kind of un, unbridled freedom. And so, right, I, I think poems are, well, I think questions in poems also draw so much attention to themselves mm. that they can be, they can be useful if you, if you're careful how you use them and kind of directing a reader's attention without giving everything away. I like that, that way that you articulated it. Well, just one more question. I'm really glad you chose to recite syzygy, which by the way, that's an amazing poetry word. It just looks cool. It's cool to say, um, uh, as this poem is a good example of the difference between reading a poem and hearing a poem recited and how a poet prepares the poem to be recited. So I was very curious to see how you would approach this because the, of course people can't see this, but uh, each of the lines is as a, uh, is, has a, the number before it uh, as a on a line of its own. So it'd be one, I was over a dozen lines as two veins of copper, which I was curious if you would try to read the numbers. I thought, boy, that'd be really awkward. So you didn't, which make, made a lot of sense. <laughs> no. But how do you approach preparing a poem to be recited? And what role does reading your poems out loud play in the revision and editing process? I think it's important to read every poem out loud at some point in the revision process because, you know, there's inevitably there'll be some difference between the way one reads a poem in their mind and the way that the words feel in one's mouth. And, you know, there have been so many times in revision where reading out loud, I realized that a phrase is actually a little bit clunky or maybe a line is too short and it, it disrupts the pacing that I was planning for. Um, this poem I actually wrote um, through this syllabic prompt. I wanted to make it a non-traditional sonnet where I each line would be 10 syllables long and I would compose each line on a separate page. But because I was being so restrictive and limiting myself to 10 syllables, obviously I'm not the first to do so. <laughs> Countless poets in the past have, but I it was introduced to the complication of needing to balance how the lines sound when read out loud mm -hmm. and the kind of arbitrary imposition of a, of a syllabic meter. And part of what I was going for in this poem, I was, you know, I actually liked the disruptive qualities of some of the line breaks, some of the lines end on what I or mm -hmm. the ghost of in ways that in my mind, kind of link the poem between um, sections, if you want to call them sections. So I guess to answer your question, I, I think that reading my poems out loud 
Well, I never explicitly think about performing them. Reading them out loud is essential. Mm-hmm. And it's something I would recommend to every poet. And it, I don't know how I would revise my poems without hearing them in, in my own voice. Uh, I agree. It's just, it's amazing how you can read, read it off the page and reading it in your mind. And you, I think you end up papering over things or, or the things where you might get stumble a bit speaking it out loud. You don't stumble in your mind. And yes, there's nothing like reading it to, to the mirror to anyone or to friends and family who uh, I, I, I thrust my poetry upon them, whether they like it or not. And it's just so helpful, even if they're tuning me out. Uh, so yes, I agree. I think, yeah, it's very hard to fully revise and edit a poem without saying it out loud, even if it's awkward and you feel silly doing it in a, uh, in a room by yourself. Well, Eric, I want to thank you for sharing your poetry and your voice on the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast, and I wish you the best of luck with your new book. Thank you so much for having me. Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast is written and produced by James Moorhead. You can follow me on Twitter at Dublin Ranch, subscribe to the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast, and follow us on viewlesswings.com or on Instagram at viewlesswings.com.